thousand sunsets from ten thousand mornings, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade all of my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. We have been talking in our last few reports about an enigmatic and little-known figure who set into motion several major cultural movements within 20th century America. The British expatriate Gerald Hurd and how he came to be, at least in the important 1950s, a type of spiritual guru and influence for the conservative Christians, influenced by the earlier parachurch organizations like Spiritual Mobilization and its Faith and Freedom newsletter, believe it or not. In these recent shows, we have briefly introduced him with some anecdotal data from his enraptured disciples, like Brave New World British author Aldous Huxley from the pages of the conservative Christian Faith and Freedom newsletter. But we will now proceed for more details about Mr. Hurd's amazing life, as documented from his other followers at the time. This source material was compiled in my last book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News. We now proceed with the further narrative from my book. More can be said about this enigmatic and significantly influential Gerald Hurd. On the official website dedicated to Gerald Hurd, a page is present with excerpts of descriptions of Hurd and interactions with him by his spiritual disciple, Spiritual Mobilization President James N. Gebretson, from his autobiography, Apprentice to the Dawn. There, he writes, The Gerald to whom... Ed Opitz had referred was Gerald Hurd. Born in London in 1889, he had been educated at Cambridge 
and then worked in a variety of fields, including a stint on BBC Radio as a science commentator and at Oxford as a lecturer. In 1937, he and his friend, Aldous Huxley, chose to immigrate to the United States, and both eventually settled in the Los Angeles area. Here, Gerald busied himself with far-ranging explorations into science, religion, and mysticism, finding much to appreciate in the wide array of cultures and ideas that had taken root in Southern California. When I first met him, he was making his living as a speaker and had authored nearly 30 books. Ed Opitz had been responsible for introducing me to Gerald at a luncheon in New York shortly after I became president of Spiritual Mobilization, or SM, in the spring of 1954. I knew immediately that I was in the presence of an expansive, deeply penetrating mind. Intrigued with Gerald's ideas, I attended several of his public lectures in Los Angeles. These talks stimulated me to approach Gerald about writing one or two essays in SM's monthly magazine, Faith and Freedom. I was delighted when he agreed. Gerald's first submission to Faith and Freedom in November 1954 was an article called The Hunger We Have Not Stilled. In it, he advocated that those faced with moral questions needed to stop seeking recovery exclusively through psychoanalysis, but turn also to a new form of religion which could provide humanity with purpose, awareness, and a capacity to appreciate human potential. As I sat awkwardly with Ed Opitz and his wife that evening, the conclusion of Gerald's article came back to me clearly. He said he had said that psychoanalysis was of use only if the patient can be brought within the contagion of one who has a whole conviction of purpose, of being part of a process whereby man is being brought into a new capacity for awareness. Man is approaching a new and wider focus of consciousness, which the Hellenistic Greek of the Gospels called metanoia. We minusculely translate it, mistranslated by the word conversion. Gerald was calling not simply for a conversion of consciousness, but for a psychological evolution, indeed a radical mutation of body and mind. When I approached Gerald to share my startling spiritual awakening, I was not seeking a system of beliefs or a set of practices, nor a priest, guru, or mentor. Instead, I wanted and needed as much guidance as I was able to assimilate at any one time. I didn't know then that, like the cuckoo bird, Gerald was always willing to lay his eggs in any available nest. We began meeting every Monday morning for discussions that lasted for up to two hours. Gerald was slim, gaunt even, with haunting blue eyes and a curly red-brown Van Dyke beard and mustache. Gerald never answered questions directly and never closed a subject. Rather, nurturing a spirit of curiosity and wonder, he would usually respond to an inquiry with a quotation from a seemingly unrelated source. Without advocating one particular path, Gerald introduced me to a variety of methods of meditation. These efforts continued even after 1966, when Gerald suffered the first in a series of strokes 
which paralyzed his body and rendered him incapable of communicating. I had felt moved on the plane, in the aftermath of that glow, to compose a brief note to Gerald, now paralyzed and bedridden, and to tell him that perhaps his hopes for me to reach an additional stage of awareness had been realized. His longtime devoted assistant, J. Michael Berry, who was caring for Gerald, replied on June 20, 1969. This was my final communication with Gerald before his death two years later on August 14, 1971. Prior to his death in 1971, he kept me informed of his public speaking engagements, his prolific output of books and essays, television and radio broadcast, and research into psychedelics before a series of strokes left him unable to speak or write, unquote. Now, this same J. Michael Berry apparently maintains the Gerald Heard website, as well as an extended chronological biography of Heard. Regarding Heard's origin, Berry notes that, quote, His boyhood years were unhappy, as his father, who often raged at the boy, subjected him to beatings. His older brothers teased him. Gerald's mother, Maud Jervis Heard, the daughter of Alexandra Bannatyne of County Limerick, died when she was a, he was a child, and afterward the Reverend Heard remarried. Although his stepmother was fond of him, and he of her, his excessive need for love made him emotionally vulnerable and overly responsive to the slightest show of kindness. This heightened sensitivity, coupled with his uncommonly precocious mind, made him an irresistible target of the sadistic teaching for which the English public schoolboy is notorious. Gerald finally learned to fend off the boys' attacks by keeping them absorbed in outlandish, outrageously unbelievable stories that he made up as he went along, and which he recounted with such conviction that in the end he became kind of a bard who, so long as his tales could hold the attention and interest of his schoolmates, was left unmolested. His university years, 1908 to 1913, were spent at Gonville and K.S. College at the University of Cambridge, following in the footsteps of his grandfather, father, and elder brother. He remained there in residence on a scholarship doing postgraduate work studying theology as a candidate in preparation for holy orders and a career as an Anglican clergyman. But subsequently, he never pursued ordination. He worked with Lord Robson for two years, uh, having been rejected by the military on physical grounds, as he suffered from a back injury when dropped as a child, and his brother, in, in fact, died in Egypt in World War I. From his youth on, it had been Hur's intention to follow in the footsteps of his paternal grandfather, Reverend John Bickford Hurd, author of a number of religious books his father, and his eldest brother, Alexander St. John Heard, and take holy orders in the Church of England. However, such a probing mind as his, consumed with curiosity and with such vast spread of interest, had been on a collision course with doubt as to many of the doctrines of Christianity from the time he was in his teens. The same reaction occurred with the Wright brothers' historic 1907 flight, again initially dismissed by a doubting public. The crash came at last in 1916. 
The result was a nervous breakdown. After a long illness, Hurd recovered to find that the young man who had wanted to be a priest missionary had become a scientific materialist with a strong sense of social responsibility. During the time in Ireland, he came to know, uh, well, many of the notables of the time. George Bernard Shaw and his wife Charlotte, W.B. Yeats, Lord Fingal, George Russell, Colonel House, and Lady Gregory were some of those with whom Hurd made friends. Now, Barry continues, quote, He was reputed to read 2,000 books a year and had an extraordinary flow of information about hygiene, sex, paranormal phenomena, and the probable destiny of mankind. He published 10 books in the 1930s. Because of Sir Julian Huxley's friendship and influence, the brother of Aldous, the grandson of Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley, the proponent of natural selection and eugenics, uh, and the original director of UNESCO, uh, and Julian was, and like Hurd, suffered a nervous breakdown at a young age. And he was brought in, uh, Hurd was brought in as a literary editor of The Realist, a monthly journal of scientific humanism, during that periodical short life of less than one year from 1929 to 1930. There he worked with an editorial board composed of, amongst others, Arnold Bennett, Aldous Huxley, Julian Huxley, Branislaw Malinowski, H.G. Wells, and Rebecca West. Pacifist Hurd and Aldous Huxley, associated with the peace movement, gave lectures in England in support of their cause in the mid-1930s, mainly at London's Peace Pledge uh, Union, a major pacifist organization. For 10 years, from 1932 to 1942, he was active on the Council and Research Committee of the Society of Psychical Research. As mentioned earlier, in 1929, he published his second philosophical book, The Ascent of Humanity, an essay on the philosophy of history that was awarded the distinguished Henrietta Hertz Prize by the British Academy. For four years, from 1930 to 1934, he was the first science commentator for the British Broadcasting Corporation commanding a large and regular listening audience with his fortnightly broadcast. Now, Barry further continues, quote, On April 12, 1937, together with his close friends Aldous and Maria Huxley, their 17-year-old son Matthew, pianist movie critic Christopher Wood, and Gerald Hurd arrived in New York City on the SS Normandy. He had been offered the post of Chairman of Historical Anthropology at Duke University, but decided, after delivering a series of lectures in that capacity for one term, that university life would be too confining for his curiosity-ridden mind. Following a brief joint lecture tour on world peace with Huxley, his participation which was cut short by a broken arm, he settled in Southern California in early 1938. But it was in Hollywood where, in 1939, Hurd met the aforementioned Swami Prabhavananda, founder of the Vedanta Society of Southern California, and began under his guidance the study and practice of Vedanta, which was to give him his final philosophical frame of reference. Referring to Hurd's popularizing influence uh, of Vedanta on Aldous Huxley, 
Christopher Isherwood, and other Western notables. The mystery writer Ellery Queen wrote, quote, Gerald Hurd is the spiritual godfather of this Western movement, unquote. He also accepted that the nature of this reality is essentially a mystery. That is, it cannot be understood through or grasped by rational processes. It can only be known through an immediate experience. He accepted further that this reality was the first cause, the source of all the diversity that we seem to apprehend through the five senses, and which, pervading the diversity and containing it in itself, could be experienced. This self-perpetuating cycle of bondage to greed and the passions goes on and on, life after life, according to Vedanta theory. Now note, these last statements should answer Hurd's earlier interviewer in Faith and Freedom we covered as to his Christian orthodoxy. Now, he continues, In the final section of the latter life of Hurd on the site, Barry adds that, quote, he was celibate by choice for the latter several decades of his life. Now, he noted his uncanny attractive pull on people, writing that most people at first encounter were drawn to Gerald Hurd by an elusive but compelling attraction that he exerted, quite unconsciously, and by which even he was continually and genuinely puzzled. When asked after his passing what word best described him, his personal physician instantly replied, Magnetism. Even when he was old, speechless, and at the point of death, he still had that magic something which drew one to him. He lists a long list of friends and admirers, including TV icon and former Tonight Show host Steve Allen, Edwin Hubble, Swami uh, Pravhavananda, jazz great Dave Brubeck, LSD researcher uh, Sidney Cohen, Dr. Sidney Cohen, actor John Gilgood, author W. Somerset Maugham, Alcoholics Anonymous founder Bill Wilson, and conservative leader and Time magazine publisher Henry Luce, and his wife, former Congressman Clara Booth Luce, shown seated with him in 1962 in the reference. He also notes that his 1950 book, Is Another World Watching? The Riddle of the Flying Saucers, was among the first full-length books on UFOs, and was completed in three weeks, and that, quote, his, eyes on, his ideas on sexuality, viewed as a force that could be harnessed for spiritual evolution, is outlined in 1939's Pain, Sex, and Time, and his theories on homosexuality as an evolutionary spiritual phenomenon were maverick, unquote. He also quotes an author who said, quote, Heard is sometimes championed as the first hippie on earth. He was known to affect long hair and denim and espouse mystical ideas in the 1930s. Barry states on each of these pages that J. Michael Barry, 1912 to 2001, served as Gerald Hurd's personal secretary, business manager, and editor, associated with Hurd from their meeting in December 1944 until Hurd's death in August 1971, and that it was excerpted from Barry's publication in Parapsychology Review in 1972. Now, <clears throat> just based upon the scant data that we have just reviewed about Gerald Hurd's early life alone, we can see yet another example of a stifling religious culture in a liturgically rigid variety, just like a fundamentalist type. 
choking and then generating rebellion in a free-spirited and sensitive youth already subject to misunderstanding and taunting, but racked with religious guilt. This is similar to fellow Brit Aleister Crowley, his peer at the time, raised at the same time in a strict Plymouth Brethren religious home in the associated British class system education taunting, where his parents' description of him as a, quote, little beast led him to relent and finally embrace the label as the great beast and was coined by the British press as the, quote, wickedest man in the world. Now, in Hurd's case, the taunting of the bullies led him to fanciful tales and fast talking to avoid beatings, which would serve him well in hoodwinking gullible adults and religious seekers with fast and vague lectures which gave a sense of some undefinable spiritual wisdom, and an impressive roster of disciples from the ranks of Hollywood, American big business, and the top press and government officials. Now we're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available in print and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other retailers. And I encourage you to obtain a copy and study it to clarify some of the historic, social, and spiritual lessons to be gleaned from its citations and narrative. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefings. We will resume our review of Tim Ballard, Operation Underground Railroad, and their sphere of influence and henchmen, and the whole anti-human trafficking craze, and the unveiling public exposure of the Mormon Church's distancing from the newly uh, scandal-plagued Ballard, and insinuations of their culpability in his sexual and other excesses, and new revelations from local Utah State investigators in their reports and files. Before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. Gerald Hurd began many movements that came into fruition with the flower generation of the 1960s and the me generation of the 1970s, only he did it decades in advance. And by the time of their flowering in the mid-60s, Hurd had been stricken by strokes and unable to communicate at a time when he might have been that generation's chief guru. In addition to beginning the drug culture and psychedelic studies, he also began, as we shall see, what is known as the human potential movement, or more commonly, the New Age. Decades previously, he asserted that humans were entering into a new evolutionary stage of psychic and spiritual development and inner perception, and the clashes of cultures that such creates during the destabilizing transition period. The flower children and the music and drug culture of the 1960s certainly accentuated that worldview. The preeminent psychedelic band of the mid to late 60s, Jefferson Airplane, used this to good effect by basing a 1967 written song on the 1955 dystopian science fiction novel The Chrysalids by the author of Days of the Triffids and the Midwich Cuckoos, John Wyndham. The book discusses mutated or evolved psychic children hunted down in a post-nuclear nation of religious fundamentalists. The airplane song includes the famous lines, You are the crown of creation, and you've got no place to go. In loyalty to their kind, they cannot tolerate our minds. In loyalty to our kind, we cannot tolerate their obstruction.
enjoy the airplane at their moody best called Crown of Creation, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Room. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. Since August, we have been covering weekly the quickly unfolding drama and downfall, apparently, of Tim Ballard and possibly his brainchild, Operation Underground Railroad, as well as the growing anti-child trafficking mania and the growing crisis of scandal within their ranks, which all but the informationally myopic evangelical Christians are starting to be aware of. At their zenith of influence this summer, with the major opening of their movie, Sound of Freedom, news began of Ballard's dismissal or departure from Underground Railroad, Utah State investigations that were underway, and by September, the first mentions of potential sexual abuse of women by Ballard within their operation, first mentioned by an anonymous letter sent to donors, and then civil lawsuits appearing by multiple women in the end of September. In the middle of that month, one of his most essential partners in the ultimate agenda of Ballard, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
began to officially distance himself from Ballard and his claims of the direct involvement of Apostle Russell Ballard, himself third in line to the head of the church, in the investments and founding of Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR, and its goal to bring evangelical supporters into the Mormon church. Our last report cited a September 15th article, yet again from Vice, which noted that the Mormon church released a statement that Apostle Ballard's friendship with Tim Ballard was, quote, in the past, and that he had exploited Apostle Ballard's name while engaging in, quote, activity regarded as morally unacceptable. We now continue with citations from this same September 15th article. They note that Ballard, quote, is also said by many Utah insiders to be weighing a run for Senate, speculation that was given more weight by a recent statement from Sean Reyes, the Utah Attorney General, who's also a longtime friend and supporter. Reyes wrote that he would not be running for Senate, allowing, quote, an opportunity for a dear friend of mine who is a great conservative, patriot, and warrior to run and serve as the next senator from Utah, unquote. Reyes said that the person would announce their run in the coming days. Now they add that, quote, The documents obtained by Vice News through a public records request are from a now-closed criminal investigation into our, or Operation Underground Railroad, conducted jointly by a Utah county attorney and the FBI. Several people, according to the documents, described exceptionally close ties between the two Ballards. Elder Ballard, who is in his 90s, is the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, an extremely senior position within the church, and is viewed by faithful Mormons as a profound spiritual and moral authority. People familiar with Hour's operations have previously told Vice News that Tim Ballard has sometimes claimed that Elder Ballard personally urged him to quit his previous job at Homeland Security investigations to found Hour. The ties between Tim Ballard and Elder Ballard described in the documents are numerous and occasionally bizarre, involving claimed business arrangements, blessings, and even a psychic who claimed to be able to communicate with the prophet Nephi, who, according to the Book of Mormon, has been dead for thousands of years. Allegations from a former hour higher up, as well as text messages contained in the documents obtained by Vice News, suggests that Tim Ballard and an associate represented Elder Ballard as a partner in the for-profit business called Slave Stealers, which was pitched as a way to control our and other nonprofits. It was apparently viewed as part of a scheme that would allow Tim Ballard to monetize the notoriety he gained through his often exaggerated exploits. Tim Ballard also claimed, according to the documents, that Elder Ballard maintained close contact with him during at least one disastrous overseas mission, which was based on information obtained by the psychic medium and aimed at rescuing a missing child. Ballard said the Mormon elder blessed him and his wife Catherine beforehand and received real-time updates from on the ground. They also cited a Mormon church statement provided to them, which included the statements, quote, For many months, President Ballard has had no contact with the founder of Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR. Once it became clear Tim Ballard had betrayed their friendship 
through the unauthorized use of President Ballard's name for Tim Ballard's personal advantage and activity regarded as morally unacceptable, President Ballard withdrew his association. President Ballard never authorized his name or the name of the church to be used for Tim's personal or financial interest. In addition, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints never endorsed, supported, or represented our Tim Ballard or any projects associated with him. They add that, quote, in an email to Sean Reyes, the Utah Attorney General, Troy Rawlings, a prosecutor in Davis County, Utah, whose office carried out the now-closed investigation into our, wrote that he had somewhere around 10,000 pages, unquote, of psychic readings. Those were conducted by Janet Russon, a psychic medium who talks to dead Mormon leaders, particularly a Mormon prophet from 600 B.C. named Nephi, to get intel, unquote, Rawlings wrote. Further, according to the former development director's statements to investigators, Tim Ballard claimed that Elder Ballard was involved in Liberty 89, a business in Utah whose registered agent is Tim Ballard, according to public filings. At a meeting with Tim Ballard and a group of his associates, who claimed, listen, to have, quote, visions and special intelligence of the second coming, unquote, the former development director said she was made aware that this venture had to do with God calling Tim Ballard to, quote, restore America to the covenant, unquote. Tim was very verbal about Elder Russell Ballard's involvement, she said. Tim would say that M. Russell Ballard is a part of Liberty 89. Before the disastrous mission to locate Gardy Marty, a missing boy, using intelligence gleaned from Russell, the psychic medium, Tim Ballard reported to a group of associates that Elder Ballard had blessed the operations. Quote, through the whole process and all these miracles, I have reported back to Elder Ballard at least every month, sometimes more, he said, according to an investigator's transcript. Quote, and on the way to the airport last night, I stopped by his house and Catherine and I spent about an hour with him. He gave me a very powerful blessing. While the mission was going on, a witness told investigators Tim Ballard placed at least one phone call to Elder Ballard to plan the press release of rescuing Gardy, which, of course, never happened. Quote, in October 2020, an FBI special agent named Luke and Brian Purdy, an investigator for the Davis County Attorney's Office, interviewed Dave Lopez, a former Navy SEAL who previously led the ops team at our. Quote, Tim said in multiple times, it's his job to use the sizzle of the rescue to lead people back to the Mormon covenant, Lopez said, according to Purdy's report. Dave stated that according to Tim, that's what this is all about. That's why he's doing all the movies and all the storytelling. He believes the Mormon church is actually doing that with him, that Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Mormon church is working with him on that secret agenda. He believes that it's his job to be this famous kind of celebrity that gets everyone's attention, but then in turn leads everyone to Mormonism. Lopez told investigator that Tim Ballard had developed a messianic view of himself. Dave said he thinks Tim is fully convinced that he is supposed to be the Mormon Messiah and lead people back to the church, the report reads. 
Now, text messages Lopez provided to investigators show an associate of Tim Ballard elaborating on the convoluted scheme. The text stated that partners, including Elder Ballard, would control a for-profit entity known as Slave Stealers, revealed in the infamous whiteboard meeting, I might add, that Lopez attended, that would have, quote, main control of our proposing to bring together, if necessary, Elder Ballard and a business partner of Lopez's with whom he was planning an island development. Vice shows text messages from an associate of Ballard stating to Lopez that, if we need to, only if we need to, we will bring blank to MRB or Elder B. You being one of the key equity holders with me, Tim, MRB slash Brad, we also have full control over Liberty and Light Funds, which is a nonprofit that was later used as a front for Ballard's new spear fund entity, might add. In August 2021, Purdy, the Davis County investigator, and the FBI special agent, referred to in documents only as Luke, interviewed the woman who worked as Hours Director of Development. In that interview, the woman in question said that in the 2015-2020 time frame, she repeatedly met Mormon leaders in Tim Ballard's company. She said she met Elder Ballard, with whom Tim Ballard claimed to privately meet monthly, in the company of Tim Ballard and Elder Ronald Rasban, who within the church had authority over Haiti, an era in which Hour has operated extensively. She said she had another meeting with both Ballards, and one with Rasban, Tim Ballard, and other Hour higher-ups, as well as several meetings with Elder Ballard in the VIP area of the hour events. At a later point, the woman said that she was, in her official work capacity, brought to a meeting with Tim Ballard's associates, where he told her that because she had, quote, shared some spiritual things, unquote, he could tell her about, quote, secret things that I'm involved in, unquote. This was the meeting at which Tim Ballard claimed Elder Ballard was involved in Liberty 89. Per the report, the woman added that, according to Tim Ballard, quote, restoring America to the covenant was a big mission of his, and he was called of God to do this. Now, two days later, the Fox affiliate in Salt Lake City reported online that, quote, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has removed articles promoting Tim Ballard and the nonprofit he founded, Operation Underground Railroad, Hour. The removals occurred on the same day of the church releasing a statement citing betrayal and condemning Ballard for morally unacceptable behavior. The church's condemnation of Ballard was released to several media outlets but was not posted on the church's official website. In a video obtained by Fox 13 News on Saturday, Ballard stated he did not believe the condemnation was accurate or truly came from the church. Quote, I don't believe the church did this, he said in the video. I truly don't. Can you imagine that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would publicly condemn one of its members? The church's statement was sent directly to Fox 13 News by Doug Anderson from his official churchofjesuschrist.org email address. Anderson has been the director of media relations for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for nearly 15 years. Glenn Beck, one of Ballard's partners, indicated on social media that Ballard had been effectively excommunicated from the church 
through ambiguous but unquestionably damning statements without giving adequate notice or the ability to respond. The next day, Vice released an updated report on Ballard's dismissal, d- dismissal from our reporting that, quote, Tim Ballard's exit from Operation Underground Railroad early this year followed an investigation into claims of sexual misconduct involving seven women, according to sources with direct knowledge of the organization. Sources familiar with the situation said that the self-styled anti-slavery activist who appears to be preparing for a Senate run invited women, now listen to this, to act as his wife on undercover overseas missions ostensibly aimed at rescuing victims of sex trafficking. He would then allegedly coerce those women into sharing a bed or showering together, claiming that it was necessary to fool traffickers. Ballard is said to have sent at least one woman a photo of himself in his underwear, festooned with fake tattoos, and to have asked another how far she was willing to go, in the words of a source, to save children. These sources request an anonymity because they fear retaliation. That's a very closed uh, Mormon family there in Utah. The total number of women involved, and this is back to the article, is believed to be higher than seven, as that would only account for employees, not contractors or volunteers. One source close to our has detailed knowledge of Ballard making sexual advances to a volunteer using methods similar to those he allegedly used with the hour employees. Those methods are also consistent with his conduct toward another former volunteer who spoke to Vice News. They note that an anonymous letter had been circulated previously to donors with these allegations and that Lynn Packer had published the full letter. The claim that the letter states that several weeks ago, an hour employee who accompanied Tim on an undercover operation filed a sexual harassment complaint against him with our HR department. The letter, which was sent this summer to donors to anti-trafficking causes, reads, This resulted in an extensive internal investigation into Tim and his individual operational tactics and led to more women speaking up as part of the investigation process. It was ultimately revealed through disturbingly specific and parallel accounts that Tim has been deceitfully and extensively grooming and manipulating multiple women for the past few years with the ultimate intent of coercing them to participate in sexual acts with him under the premise of going where it takes and doing whatever it takes to save a child. The same day Christian uh, news site WorldNet Daily published an article that included Ballard's recorded public comments to his supporters in Boston, as he proclaimed, quote, It's not true. Nothing you hear is true. This is breaking down my family like you can't believe, unquote. In a public statement published on September 18th on the website of his new Spear Fund organization, Ballard states that, quote, Evil pedophiles will stop at nothing, and they will have allies in government, in the media, in big corporations, and even in public institutions. They continue to lie about and attempt to destroy my good name. They will never stop. We are also highly suspicious about the timing of such a statement given its close proximity to Mitt Romney's announcement that he is retiring and my own public comments that I am prayerfully considering running for public office. 
A week later this December, the Utah governor felt necessary to respond to the Ballard controversy. On September 21st, KUTV in Salt Lake City reported that, quote, Utah Governor Spencer Cox is weighing in on the controversy surrounding Operation Underground Railroad founder Tim Ballard. During his monthly news conference Thursday, Cox said that he only met <coughs> uh, Ballard once and doesn't know him well, but that he's troubled by the allegations against him. Governor Cox said that those allegations are incredibly disturbing and just awful and, if true, just unconscionable. Regarding the church rebuke of Ballard, they note that he added, I know that there's a lot of pushback, like, did this really come from the church? Did it really come from a rogue spokesperson, Cox said, the governor. He says, I reached out to the church personally and was assured that that did come from the church that it had been vetted through all the normal church processes. On September 23rd, in a published article that confirmed many of the accusations we have documented with their own documents they had obtained, the Salt Lake Tribune added, quote, Former high-level employees at Operation Underground Railroad, perhaps the nation's most prominent nonprofit aimed at fighting sex trafficking, had serious concerns about whether the organization had inflated its rescue numbers, stopped conducting such operations, and misled donors in order to raise tens of millions of dollars. Those concerns are spelled out across 75 pages of interviews, emails, and documents obtained by the Salt Lake Tribune through an open records request. In one investigative interview, a former hour operative uh, said he was told by the head of a for-profit venture Tim Ballard was launching to control proceeds from movie deals, book sales, and speaking fees that the senior apostle was a partner in the company, Slave Stealers. The documents represent a small portion of a series of interviews gathered in a criminal investigation of our conducted jointly by the Davis County Attorney's Office and the FBI. In all, they collected more than two terabytes of information. David Lopez, a former Navy SEAL involved in training operations and leading our operations, told investigators he was offered a $25,000 monthly salary to join Ballard Slave Stealers. Lopez said that the head of the organization told him that Ballard was making $900,000 annually from the organization. Lopez also provided investigators with a text message from Brian Norton, the head of Slave Stealers, that referred to President Ballard as a, quote, key equity holder and a, quote, silent partner in Slave Stealers. Now, quote, within a few years, Lopez and another former hour employee, uh, Churston Stockwell, who was the development director for the nonprofit, said the mission had morphed significantly. What they saw was a fundraising operation raking in tens of millions of dollars, channeling it to law enforcement or other nonprofit organizations, and then taking credit for their work. Our donors might have been surprised to learn that was the case. In a 2021 interview with investigators, Stockwell recounts how Matt Osborne, now ours president and chief operating officer, began telling her, quote, We both know that we don't rescue here anymore. We both know that we hardly rescue abroad anymore. Stockwell was bothered that the organization led the public to believe its teams were still out liberating children globally because, she told investigators, that's just not true. 
She had qualms with whether Hour was being truthful with contributors who were being told that every $1,250 they donated would save a sex trafficked child. She requested but never received any data to back up that assertion. Yet selling that image to potential donors worked. Psychic Janet Russon would put herself in a trance and begin scribbling lines in front of her and then direct the teams where they needed to go. One of those on the operation said that Tim Ballard had assured others uh, on the trip that President Ballard had approved of relying on Roussan's guidance and her spiritual gifts. Roussan later became the head of Children Need Families, a branch of our aimed at facilitating adoptions of at-risk kids. Across the globe, according to a recorded conference call, Russin also professed to be able to communicate with Nephi, a prophet in the Book of Mormon. Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes has participated in our operations, promoted Ballard's potential candidacy for the U.S. Senate, and lists himself as an associate producer on Sound of Freedom. The documents also contain a description of a video that depicts an operator and prominent donor to Operation Underground Railroad, Paul Hutchinson, touching the exposed breast of an underage child. A source who participated in the hour operations confirmed the existence of the video. But also, we had issues with Paul in the past playing his role too well and flirting with the lines too much, this person told investigators. A lot of us were uncomfortable working with him. Hutchinson is the producer of the Sound of Freedom movie. Now, I don't know how to summarize all this, but the revelations are not over for Tim Ballard an hour. In fact, they're just heating up with many more other players and bizarre influences to be exposed in this widening scandal. The one thing I assume is likely is that the evangelical community is still firmly in his corner, by and large, mostly because their information sources will not even touch these reports from law enforcement or legitimate sources and are inclined to defend someone with whom they have quickly invested so much emotional capital. Accusing the large array of diverse witnesses to his misdeeds as all fake news and refuse to consider their evidence, just like they did with their president recently. Well, before we resume our review of a historical section from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, we need to take a break for more music for meditation. One thing I've noticed from the religious right crowd I was raised in is that they never seem to seek to elevate wisdom or even common sense and recognition of prior mistakes and the school of hard knocks as a culture, and similarly marginalize and ignore the handful of such reflective or contemplative voices within their own ranks. They ignore the long list of charlatans and robes who have used the name of Jesus and words from the Bible numerous times, yet willingly fall prey again to them when they promise personal riches without hard work or sacrifice, or merely just self-worshipping pride in oneself and one's tribe, and offering a scapegoat to blame for all their shortcomings in life, and they're not executing their goals to their potential and expectations of creature comforts and status. This includes their embracement and defense of adulterer and pyramid scheme con man Jim Baker, who shook down grassroots and Christian leaders with his too-good-to-be-true condo pyramid scheme, the prostitute pervert Jimmy Swaggart, innumerable prosperity gospel preachers, 
the menage a trois pervert and money-worshipping Jerry Falwell Jr. and his Liberty University, uh, who Christian parents and uh, government money shakedown uh, front. The anti-LGBTQ stalwart and gay lover and drug user Ted Haggard, who was the head of the National Association of Evangelicals. The deep Christian philosopher and intellectual and massage parlor owner, sexual propositioner, and uh, credential faker, Robbie Zacharias. And the list goes on and on. And now Tim Ballard. Never checking their credentials or connecting the dots. Like the poor soul seeking love from one who goes from exploitative relationships with one rogue just out of prison and on to another. I assume most of these folk, just like those who hear the latest prophetic utterances from their leaders that don't come true, will continue to just suddenly ignore the latest fiasco and thus rinse and repeat like nothing ever happened. While it's hard to feel sorry for such willing fools who seek to get something for nothing and refuse to use wise judgment and discernment or even seek it from trusted others, there will be others, a little bit more reflective, who will feel burned one last time and will reluctantly resign themselves to chucking it all and throw out the baby with the bathwater on a spiritual relationship with God rather than seeking smaller, humbler voices, often crying in the wilderness from parish priests to small-town pastors that do not entertain or appeal to selfish pride, but rather pursue a sincere, non-flashy, and humble path of patience in connecting with the Creator or even just resolve to pursue such divine fellowship themselves with timeless wisdom and text, and maybe with trusted friends. Their understandable distrust may resort in them withdrawing from any spiritual pursuits or even attempting new, more sincere uh, spiritual approaches, saying that, like bad relationships, I've been wrong before, and missing eternal love and fellowship from the Creator who seeks a relationship without middlemen. The interesting late 60s group H.P. Lovecraft sang about a such love-defeating instinct. Enjoy. I've been wrong before. And then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. The night we met The night that I won't forget You see what I've been waiting for See? 
Friends, that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. In our next edition, we will continue with further exploring the exploits of the adult herd as he and Huxley migrate to America and the establishment of new expressions of spirituality in the burgeoning spiritual melting pot of Southern California. As excerpted from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form either at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other sites to review this and far more expansive material on its subject uh, and look at it in greater depth. Again, that's Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1. Please send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com, T-W-O-S-P-I-E-S report at gmail.com. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and be willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand.